0: Hot. Hot.
1: Hello, fellow podcasters. Welcome to PodPod. Pod. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm your host, Rihanna Dillon. And this week, we've got a cracking pair of guests in the form of Nasheen Iqbal and Michael Safi, who are hosts of Today in Focus for The Guardian, which is a daily podcast, as I'm sure you know, which takes personal stories and anecdotes and uses them to offer listeners a bit of a deeper understanding of any one topic. Nothing is off the table, whether it's politics or scandals, pop culture, current affairs. The stories are thoroughly researched by journalists and they give us great insights into something where we might only have seen a headline. But before we get to Nasheen and Michael, hello to Adam Shepherd and Reem Makari. Hello. hello. Hi, how are you guys?
2: Well, how are you?
0: Yeah, good, thank you. Reem, it's nice to have you back. Yes, it's good to be back, although it's not great to be in this awful weather. <laughs> It was minus one this morning i came from where it was 25 degrees so <gasps> oh my god
1: well i'm not feeling sorry for you in the slightest we've had no. nothing but awfulness and today the sun is shining so i will not have a bad word said <laughs> Reem, you were talking earlier about um, this sort of really interesting marketing campaign in podcasting that i've never heard of before so can you tell us about that
0: Yes, it's actually one of my favorite pieces of recent news, (laughs) um, which is there was a a new podcast slash audiobook that was released um, on the 8th of January, I believe. Um, And it is hosted and narrated by Stephen Fry. It was an audiobook about a thriller story um, that was a nine-part series and it was promoted across multiple billboards. It was uh, promoted on social media, on Acast with other podcast influencers. So it had a big push before it was actually released. Um, and then after the first three minutes of the first episode it goes completely silent um, and the rest of the episodes were fully silent and then on the Friday um, chapter 10 of the podcast released and Stephen Fry revealed that it was all a stunt um, that was created in collaboration with Missing People Charity UK and it was to raise awareness about missing people and to redirect them to the website so that they could get help if this is something that they've been through or know someone that they've been through. Um, And then the feeling that you get listening to the podcast when it goes silent is the same feeling that people have when um, they have a missing loved one. Um, So I just thought it was was a really creative way to raise awareness for something that's very important. But it also shows the power of podcasts Mm -hmm. um, and how so many people are now engaging with podcasts that it's it's worth creating a campaign on there because people will will listen.
2: I absolutely... Love this campaign. It makes such clever use of audio and the conventions of audio it mm. subverts them in in really interesting ways because the the rest of the episodes go silent almost there are little occasional like tiny garbled snatches of sort of glitchy audio. Mm-hmm. So if you did listen to the full thing, you would be led to believe that it was some kind of technical error rather than a, a deliberate choice, which is just a really a really nice, clever touch. The details of the supposed podcast, looking back now that we know it's a stun, are just very, very golf clap. So the podcast is called The Missing Lines, mm-hmm. um, and it is by... Uh, acclaimed author M. S. Singh,
3: mm-hmm.
2: which is kind of one of those ones when the penny drops, you're like, okay, I, I have indeed seen what you did there, <laughs> um, which was which was quite clever. So the campaign was dreamt up by creative agency uh, House Three Three Seven and uh, had support from a number of partners, including companies like Adilicious, Listen, and Good Stuff. And it's a really good example of, yeah, the storytelling power of podcast advertising. And it's the kind of work that I would love to see more of in the uh, audio advertising awards that we've got coming up later this year.
1: It is a really interesting way of using podcasts, isn't it? Because I know that um, you wrote about Joe Lysett doing quite something quite similar with Turdcast. Yes.
2: And if you want to hear more interesting and creative case studies from the world of podcast advertising, we have the Podcast Advertising Summit coming up at the end of the month on the 25th of January at the Barbican Centre in London.
1: Um, Okay, thank you so much. It's now time to speak to Nasheen Iqbal and Michael Safi about their daily podcast, Today in Focus for The Guardian. Here they are. Sheen and Michael, hello, welcome to PodPod, Pod. how's it going?
3: Pretty good. Yeah, very well, thanks for having us.
1: Good, thank you so much for being on. We have been wanting to talk to you for a really long time, <laughs> so this is really, really exciting. We've already given like a little overview of today in focus in the intro, but when did you guys get involved? Because you weren't there from the very beginning, but you've been there a while.
4: Came, came on as a, sh- a double-headed team, didn't we, at the same time? <laughs> uh august july august 2021
3: around then
4: yeah mm-hmm. yeah around pretty then. fuzzy
3: boundary but around then yeah we, we were saying yesterday we pretty much were told we had the job and the machine was thrown behind a microphone probably hours after being told she had the job
4: yeah and it was like moved from the observer on on one day saying oh you've got this job to like straight into today and focus <laughs> so you know <laughs> baptism of fire
1: <laughs> and was that something that you were used to doing? Did you already know how to present a podcast at that point? Or was it really kind of starting from scratch?
4: I, in all honesty, was a print journalist very much. Um, and I'd done a bit of Radio For just had the complete faith of Nicole Jackson and the execs who were like, she can do it. And so they made me. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and Mike what about you had you had much experience
3: not really I'd done like student radio and then otherwise pretty much had done print but then when Today in Focus launched I think in 2018 I, I pretty quickly realized that you know so much of what we did I was a foreign correspondent at the time and you know you'd go out for these two or three day trips and come back with like 1200 words and feel like the the best stuff I've seen you know what a place sounds like and smells like and, you know, the way someone's dressed and all that ends up getting left on the cutting room floor. And then suddenly we had this forum where you could talk about all of that. And so I think I took to the podcast really quickly because I felt like here was a place where like a lot of the richness of the reporting we were doing could be communicated in a way that was just a little bit harder in
2: print. So can you tell us a bit more about that process of moving from print journalism and more traditional journalism to podcast journalism and to Today in Focus? Did you have to shift your kind of approach or your your thinking to news reporting and, and journalism at all?
3: Yeah, it was challenging, um, especially because when you're a reporter, you feel like you want to be the person who has all the answers. And as a presenter... It's a real shift, right? Because suddenly you're the one asking questions and sometimes given the format of the show, you feel like you know the answer. But I realised within a few months that like the role of the presenter really is to... And the role, the role of the whole show is to build this really smooth conversation and that you're trying to take what are like complex stories often about places that are a long way away from where people might be listening and trying to get them to understand it, to understand its complexity and the nuances. And I think that's the part that I was drawn to. So the part of me that felt like I was missing out on being able to go out and find this stuff out myself, I felt like I could compensate that by being in this role where you're kind of helping people to get it. And that's a lot of fun, actually, and feels like a really big responsibility and something that feels important because, you know, we know from research that our audience is majority 25 to 34, which is extremely rare in Mm. the industry. Um, And so we're talking to kind of young, curious people. And I I really love that idea, right? That the people are coming to us because they want to know about Gaza, about Taiwan, about the Rwanda bill. And, you know, we have this like great privilege to try to tell them about it in a way that we think is important, that is shaping the story in, in the right way. So I think what i lost not being able to report i think i really gained in being able to share with people these stories that we think are really important.
1: Machine, can you tell us about like the the whole process of planning these stories and how you decide what to cover, what your deadline looks like, what your kind of week looks like, if that's not too massive a question.
4: Um it's it's really collaborative. So that would say that's the first shift you notice going from being a lone reporter journalist to realizing there is a whole team and the ideas and the programmes only come good, the episodes only come good when everyone's like, worked on it together and like come to agreements on like what the tone is, what the central question is, who might be the best interview. Um, and as much as me and Mike, obviously, are the, the voice, there's a lot of work beforehand. And in terms of the way it's structured of the week, I generally always think of you're, ha- you're having a really fun time in news if, like, 30% of the stories... Well, thirty-three percent of the stories you're doing because of the news agenda. Thirty-three yeah. percent is just because you you have to do, and it's kind of the the a team choice. And thirty-three percent for you. So like there is this even-ish balance, and we kind I feel like we kind of hit that. But in terms of the news, it's dictated by what's happening, right? So for a news podcast, it takes that out of the equation about what's the idea. Mm-hmm. The ideas are there's too many. If anything, there's it's constant. In terms of how the week's structured, it can be, you can turn around an episode in a day, you can take the luxury of a week, Um, it depends on the subject.
3: I mean, for me, one of the things I really enjoy about the show is that it really is a combination of the sensibilities of all the people who work on it. So we have, like, a meeting every morning, and over the years, working with the same producers and executive producers, you come to see that, like, people have interests and they have ways of looking at the news, and... You know, they sort of will chip away at issues day after day, week after week, and eventually you'll end up with an episode that really reflects what this like one particular producer is really passionate about. And I love the idea that the show is is, this—it's like a synthesis of like the things that these eight or nine people plus presenters plus EPs are really passionate about. And the result is what you hear, you know, every morning in the podcast.
1: How many stories might you have going on on one?
4: day you're not focusing on one story every single day are you or are you you can have in one day you could be planning one episode recording another and editing a different one so I had a couple of those days this week where your head was in three different episodes at the same time Mm -hmm. generally Mike how do you feel about you know one episode per day does it ever work out like that for you because it doesn't on on my end (laughs) no
3: very rarely I mean if it's like if it's like a huge like the day that uh, Russia invaded Ukraine like that was the thing we were doing that day And obviously that was important. So we did it, but yeah, often you're being pulled in three or four different directions. And, you know, for me, one of the big adjustments to coming on the show was like learning to let go a little bit. Like you feel like you want to be across every single story, but then you just can't, you don't Mm. have the time. And so you've got to come to rely on producers that that they get it. And when they sit down to explain to you, here's what's going on here and here's the way we're going to tackle it. You have to sort of uh, loosen that muscle that says, but I want to be the one who decides that. And, and, You know, over time you build up trust and it's kind of nice. It's kind of nice to feel like the whole thing is this like, like a big brain's trust, right? And you can just kind of sit down and let someone tell you like, okay, what's our take on this? How are we tackling this story? Mm. It's the only way. Otherwise, there's just Mm -hmm. too much going on.
4: It It punctures a myth that, you know, for most people thinking about podcasts, it's like, oh, you're just, you know, a couple of people sitting around a mic. But we spend as much time in planning the episodes and understanding mm. the story, if not more, in fact, way more than we do in the recording.
3: And we've had reporters tell us, including yesterday, that like it's extraordinary the amount of work we'll put into their stories. Like we'll, uh-huh. Our producers will come out of the end of an episode knowing as much about a topic as the person who went out and reported it. And I've been on both sides of that. And <laughs> right. yeah, it's like daunting but gratifying to see how much how much yeah. care is taken with the work people do. And I think that's why they, they trust us. And, you know, why over the past five years, I think we've become really close to the newsroom um, and people have like increasingly come to see us as like, you know, a kind of core, like core part of the Guardian, not like a kind of audio add on to the print mm. stuff, but like, you mm-hmm. know, a, a
2: primary channel to the journalism mm. we do. So on that yeah. subject, then, how is the podcast supported by the rest of the newsroom? Because, of course, the Guardian has offices and, and branches and correspondents across the world in a huge number of different kind of areas of specialty tell us a bit more about how that relationship works
4: the really satisfying thing is that we have brilliant journalists as you said across the world but they come to us i think the idea of today in focus is now inbuilt in the commissioning when a lot of reporters go out to a story or you know they're covering their particular beat they're now thinking in audio as well and like recording tape and thinking about sound and texture and pitching i mean ov- obviously we go out to the reporters as well and say oh we see you're working on x y and z and can we know more but w- we get so many pictures from a- across different desks um and incredibly satisfying
3: yeah no, i think it wasn't always that way like i think so- that's something that has been earned over the past few years as people see just how well stories are treated, how kind of carefully the nuances of them are brought out. And I think that's like a big win for us um, in what is what, what, in what was kind of originally a print newsroom and is now a kind of digital one.
4: And you were saying, in fact, Mike, just yesterday with one of our correspondents in Gaza, Mike asking, can you help us with some contacts? And that reporter immediately just turning over their contacts book and saying, absolutely. I mean, that... Journalists obviously don't do that with each other because that, that trust really does have to be earned, but they appreciate that Mike, today in focus, is going to treat these stories sensitively. You know, that was it's kind of a sense of where the relationships are. And if somebody comes to you with
1: a story, do they have ownership over that or are they completely handing it over to you?
3: I would say it's it's pretty collaborative. Ultimately, they're the experts. So I think we would mm-hmm. usually, like, prepare a treatment. Us knowing podcasts, here is how we would go about telling your story. But I think we, we would always go back to them and say, like, does this sound right? Like, perhaps we would... In some yeah. cases, you might show them the plan. Um, other cases, uh-huh. you just give them the spiel and say, like, look, we think even though you've written it this way, in audio it works much better to do it this way. What do you think of that? Right. And especially when it comes to the nuances on, like, your trickier topics, like like Gaza, say, you know, we ultimately will defer to the correspondent because they're the person in the field... Uh-huh they know the story and they'll cop the flack if we get it wrong. Oh, right. um, it, 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 there's no sense of territorialness because yeah. it's one organisation, it's kind of their voices we're ultimately putting out there. What do you think? Deshaun?
4: Yeah, no, I, I was just thinking in terms of if, I, if I'd been on the other end five years ago, I would have absolutely d- demanded to have heard the edit before it went out. I, that level of control yeah. and knowing, well, if this is my story, this is my voice, I, I need to know how it's been done. Yeah, I haven't had that really in the last... E- three years um there there is an implicit understanding that we've done a lot of prep the you know they've they've heard the interview they've gone through the interview process and they trust that the editing is absolutely going to reflect the best of their work i mean uh, sometimes occasionally you will send it something back to a correspondent just to do some fact checking but there's never been any and none of the interviewees have asked or get the edit as we're working on it before it goes out
2: When you're selecting what stories you're going to cover on the podcast, what are the sort of criteria that you're bearing in mind? Do you have to ensure that you're catering for a global audience in terms of the spread of topics that you're covering from one week to the next? Or is it just like what's the most important thing that's happening in any given week?
3: I think we definitely think about trying to get a balance it's like quite a big thing to say this is the one story we're doing today so you have to be pretty judicious because you know if you're doing british politics five days a week if you're doing foreign stuff five days a week you're kind of giving a skewed sense of what the guardian's priorities might be i guess or or at least like of where we're, we're kind of ranging the spotlight in a given week um so we definitely think about balance we think about balance geographically we think about balance in tone so, you know, not to do stuff that's... I mean, there's just so much depressing stuff happening in the world, so you end up doing a lot of it. But, yeah, to try and push for episodes that, you know, are about what makes life worth worth living, music, culture, like funny stuff that does occasionally happen in the world. Yeah, it's very much a curated choice, I'd say.
4: I mean, it's interesting because until this week, I didn't know much. I mean, that sounds awful. I did know about our audience, but I didn't, wasn't re- necessarily interested in figures and all the rest of it. And learning that actually Mm -hmm. half of the audience is global, is international, beyond the UK, and that our interests naturally skew that way and our focus already is generally that way. And also that, you know, more than half of the audience is female, which you don't get with news offerings. How? No. Yeah, it it feels like we're doing something right (laughs) and people are interested. And
1: with that knowledge now going forward, do you think that's... That will kind of impact not necessarily how you tell the story, but just who you have in your mind as the average listener. Do you think that's going to ever kind of come more into your periphery than it perhaps did before? Um,
4: I love our listeners, but I don't think so because, <laughs> like, I just think if I didn't wasn't paying too much attention to it before, then probably best to carry on in that mode. I mean, it does. It does
3: for me in a way. You asked at the beginning what it was like to transition to the job, and I said that you know you go from a job where you feel like you need to have the answers to one where you're asking Mm. questions. And, you know, knowing that our our audience is younger, for me, helped me to make sense of kind of the kind of presenter I would be, that, like, I would sort of... You kind of want to show people that, like, it's fine to not know who the Houthis are. Like, like that's something that you shouldn't be ashamed of. It's like a totally normal question to ask when they're in the news, Mm -hmm. right? And so it did help me to think about, okay, like, when we have an expert on the Middle East on, like, one of our correspondents what are the kinds of questions we'd ask? What's the knowledge we assume? And what's the tone that we ask them in as well, right? Mm -hmm. Like to give people a sense that we as presenters are kind of in there with you. Like we're not here to tell you Mm -hmm. what's happening. We're like just sort of curious people who have noticed this thing going on and are asking the questions that might occur to you as someone who, yeah, is like 28 years old and reads the paper and is trying to like make sense of the world. But also pitch it in a way that, if you're 35 45 50 is still going to feel like informed and balanced and kind of asking the right questions.
1: So then Mike, if you're going into an interview, do you feel like you you don't necessarily need to have all of the answers before you go in? You know, what is your level of research before you meet an expert in that field? I know you're talking about your team, but also you as an individual. I would say
3: I have a kind of vague sense of what the answers will be broadly, but not the specifics because I think Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to do mainly is to make it feel like a, a flowing conversation. Like like for us, narrative is really important. And like having the episode feel like it's flowing in a really satisfying way is I think the kind of key thing we're trying to do. So yeah. I'm going into an interview after this and I don't really know what the person's going to say specifically. But I have a sense mm-hmm. of where we're going to start and where we're going to end, the kind of thought that you want to kind of leave people with. I think that's for the kind of reporter to navigate. It would just be too much. Like, like it's just too much to get across. Someone, someone's going to tell, you, talk to you for like nearly an hour. There's just too much detail for you to get across if you're doing two or three mm. interviews a day, I would say.
4: Although I do like to cram up because it's hard to let go of that sort of journalist ego thing <laughs> of um, wanting to be an expert in something in, in one point one and a half hours. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's often better to have a sense than be genuinely... Not understand, or genuinely have questions that the audience would then also ask. Mm.
3: Mm. Yeah, and it's nice. I mean, often the best stuff in an interview are the things that come up really naturally, like where your curiosity is just, you know, piqued yeah. by something, and takes so you, t- you yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And often it takes you to a place that wouldn't have come up in the planning session. Um, I think in podcasting, maybe in any kind of audio medium, th- those like serendipitous moments are the ones that you end up really chasing. Um, because the listener can can hear them. Like they can hear that you're genuinely surprised. That wasn't expected. And it's kind of, it's Mm. like really electric thing that like only happens so often. But like when it does, it's just like, I don't know what we do it for.
2: So you've spoken already about your experience of uh, hosting podcasts and producing podcasts before uh, Today in Focus. But I'm curious about your previous podcast consumption and podcast listening were you guys both podcast listeners and podcast fans before you got this gig or uh, did you kind of find yourselves exploring the world of podcasting as a kind of relative newcomer machine
4: i for a period was radio critic for the guardian which in during my beat i extended to podcasts so i was that annoying person in like 2011 2012 being like i've just heard this great podcast on that thing <laughs> um and sort of pushing that onto people so i i was very much aware of the form like did all those big reviews of serial when it you know sort of broke the i used to read your stuff oh, yeah i love it but anyway since then <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> By the time I got to host Today in Focus, it was part of, like, my cultural wallpaper, I'd say. And very obvious big shows to obscurities, all the Gimlet stuff, crooked media, all that sort of stuff.
3: Yeah, uh, in a similar way, I, at university, had a very boring office job um, and would listen, started listening to the back catalogue of This American Life. And I think that was, like, my first real uh, exposure. I think it was, like, an education in podcasting because... Mm-hmm. I didn't do very much work in that job, and like over the um, <laughs> hours and hours of listening, you sort of like you kind of absorb the like the like narrative elements of it, um, the way mm-hmm. a story can flow really nicely, the way characters are built, the way scenes are built, um, and I think for me that's the like that's when I think today in focus is at its best, where we can take a news story and and apply this like storytelling lens and make it come alive in a way where you know, you're learning about whatever the news issue is, but the thing that's driving you is the people involved and the things they're going through. And, like, if you do it properly, put the listener in people's shoes um, Mm. and have them see whatever the story is in these, like, really powerful kind of human elements. Shows like This American Life, I think, showed the potential of podcasting to do that. I think Mm. what we get to do is to figure out how to have that effect, that, like, driveway moment where you just stay in your car listening. Mm. But when it comes to news. And, you know, it isn't easy, but, like, I think it's pretty unmatched as a way to take in news. Something that, like, can often be reported in these really antiseptic terms in like, fast news bulletins or just, like, chatted over by commentators. You know, I think we can do it differently. We can kind of give you a sense of what it feels like to be on the outskirts of Kiev when the Russians are invading, say, or, you know, in Gaza while it's being bombed, like, to kind of really... Tell the story of like people in in these situations mm. in like a really immersive way, mm. and, and I think that comes from the sorts of podcasts that i I listen to and the kind of, sort of kind of podcast that built this whole industry right
1: and if there is a, a news item that is sort of saturating every part of the media, so just for example let 's take the post office scandal at the moment, which you had already covered right this was not you know it wasn 't like oh ITV have done a drama let 's talk about this. this was already in your feed. Then you kind of, did you pu- you kind of, you revisited it. So was that adding more stuff? Was that re-releasing old episodes? And then what else did you add to the story that perhaps we wouldn't get from the TV or the news? Well, in
4: the first instance, I would say those two episodes, um, which were done by Anushka um, and the team before Mike and me, are two of the best episodes today in Focus have ever done. I think they were brilliant. The investigation, right. the reporting. And yes, you know, like a lot of other journalists out there, they were doggedly on this story. And yes, it is bonkers Mm -hmm. that it takes an ITV drama for ministers to act. But that level of mainstream awareness and sort of public fury, it it, it had to get to this tipping point. And so when we revisited it this week, Mm -hmm. obviously, we we weren't going to redo the whole thing. We ran the first two episodes, but then realized that we needed for us that the news hook, it couldn't just be about this mounting pressure and as yeah. it turned out, Rishi Sunak did announce new legislation and that is what we then mm-hmm. made the episode about. Okay, so how has this been resolved? What is being concluded here, if anything? And of course we revisited one of our original interviewees, Janet Skinner and see how she's doing now.
1: Um, with, well, What are some of like the more memorable things that you've covered oh, in your sort of, tenure? What are the things, the stories that have really stood out, either for you or ones that have made a surprising impact on your audiences?
3: So for me, um I worked on a two-part series, gosh, nearly two years ago now. It was Mm -hmm. called Searching for the Shadow Man, and it was uh, about a a video of a Syrian war crime. Sorry, it's it's a very heavy story, but it was like...
1: It it leaked
3: off of a laptop in uh, Damascus, and it made its way to these researchers in Amsterdam, and they had spent, like, years figuring out who were the, the soldiers in the video committing this crime, and then they befriended one of them on Facebook and like recorded interviews with him for a couple of years and for me that was so memorable because it felt like one extraordinary story like colliding with another like the story of this war crime in the video but then the story of these researchers who like assumed an alter ego in order to interview the perpetrator um it felt like the kind of story that comes up a couple of times in your career maybe Mm -hmm. and you know by that time I was on the podcast and we made it into like this two-part episode we went to Amsterdam for it um there was just so much material like they had recorded these interviews and then when it came out you know there was a print story that came out as well um and the reaction was was incredible like like I, I was I was based in the Middle East and it was all everyone was talking about for for a few days um and then like the French government announced that they were going to investigate this perpetrator for war crimes it was incredible but it was like not just being able to do the story but to do the story in these like two 40 minute episodes like we got to take 80 minutes to tell people about what had happened to take them through this story and to make the characters in it come alive like these researchers um to tell the story of the war in Syria which is something that like you know I'd been following for years and felt like people needed to know about. So for me, that was like a great combination of like incredible story, but also to to have like the medium to do it justice, I feel. Um, So that's one, that's very serious. The other one I would say was we did one last year on the COP Summit, which was recently held in the UAE. And we had on Damien Carrington, our environment editor. And he's very dry, very funny. And he just told us the story of the sort of like various dodgy things that were happening in the lead up to the summit. Like the way that the person who was running it was a kind of member of the royal family and the head of an oil company, the state oil company. And like people had been editing his Wikipedia and it turns out that they they, they figured out who those people were. They were working for the state oil company, like there were all these like bizarre things. And we got to just tell this story about the environment and, you know, it could be quite depressing, but the way we did it was it was almost like you were being told the story of just a, like a scam, like something that was kind of a little bit funny, a little bit dry. And I thought that was nice. It was nice to be able to take something that might be a bit hard to swallow, but, you know, retell it in a way that actually, despite the the, the source material, is kind of fun.
4: Nasheen, have you managed to think of anything? I'll start with an investigation that we did into a story titled um, Bangladesh's Missing Children. So it was a three part mini-series. Mm in collaboration with two reporters at The Guardian who'd been working on it for at least two years. Very complicated story about inter-country adoption, about babies essentially being adopted and taken without their family's will to countries abroad and growing up not realising that actually they were never supposed to be adopted. The families were still fighting to get them back mm. and they went back to Bangladesh and some of their parents had died and and some were reunited. But God. it was... and. You know, this is a story with so many threads to pull, but at the heart of it, you know, we have these central characters who'd gone through really quite difficult lives um, and were looking for resolutions um, and we're looking to attribute some sort of accountability. And, you know, we even tracked down one of the key figures who was responsible for so many of these adoptions just being rush through into the Nordic countries, into Canada. That was a sort of remarkable piece of work by the two journalists involved but we were working collaboratively on it together for months. Like the reporting was still unfolding while we were planning and recording right. the episodes. It was a very live experience. Yeah. And also just something that wouldn't necessarily be spotlighted anywhere else. It's not essential mm-hmm. focus of ev- you know the news agenda in general. Um, so that really is shining a light mm-hmm. on a dark forgotten story that deserve to be more widely known on the flip side on a in a a much lighter way I do enjoy sneaking in some of our um more fun culture lighter stories or just Mm -hmm. reappraising figures that probably have not been considered in in the light that we're presenting them in I'm thinking of Sinead O'Connor or Madonna or um yeah any one of the culture stories that we do it's slightly different it's slightly sideways to what the general narrative is
1: and when it comes to the the difference between the the culture ones which are maybe slightly lighter or the kind of more topical news ones do you sort of look through and think right we've actually we haven't really had um one that looks at i don't know a particular country for a very long time or we haven't had one that looks at the lives of women in a certain area for a very long time and do you do you ever come at it from that perspective or is it completely you know what takes it. I don't you. think it's
4: that calculated I think it's a combination of what is interesting mm. the team what is in the news what are people talking about and yeah I guess sometimes I don't know what what's the consideration here sometimes we'll remember that hang on a second it's been a really heavy week and someone commissioned something a bit lighter but, yeah uh, I don't know Mike what, what
3: do you reckon yeah I mean I, I think we have I think as you say it's that like combination of all our producers, you know, Nishin and I, our EPs, butting heads in the morning and, and figuring out what we think is the biggest topic of the day or the most interesting, interesting thing to cover. Um, we have, like, quite a diverse team as well. And so I think, naturally, we end up getting a pretty good spread. Like, we're not the kind of team that's going mm. to be drawn to politics five days a week or, mm. you know, whatever is sort of seen as the biggest story by the tabloids or something. Like, it's a team of, like, really passionate people who, who have very distinct passions. Um, and the combination of those is a really nice spread and a spread that speaks to a, a younger audience than most news podcasts. Um, and, and, you know, an audience that, that skews more women than men. And I think that's, mm. you, you can't engineer that. Mm. You, you can't kind of make that happen in a lab somewhere. That has to come from being a team that is, yeah, genuinely diverse, full of like passionate, interesting people
1: because we're going to have people listening who you know might be wanting to start dare i say at their own daily podcast because i know that's such an, a huge feat really to take on and we've spoken in the past to other daily podcasters we've heard about some of the challenges so do you have any advice or tips for journalists who might want to take on their own even if it's not you know it, it might not be quite to the same standard um you might not have the same enormous team around you but
4: any tips Oof. Always, always make sure it sounds good and that you're recording. Always make sure you're recording. That's my first <laughs> tip. can happen when you're
3: not. I would say my advice would be, um, like, get out of a room. Like, like, don't just think of it as you in a room on a microphone. Like, mm. you know, if you're a journalist, mm. if you're out there doing stories like in, in your community, like, take us with you. You know, show us what your community is like, what the story you're covering mm. is like. Um all that stuff, that colour is what I think will set you apart, what will help to like immerse listeners in what you're trying to do. I'd say. You
4: just reminded me, it's actually the opposite advice that you have as an editor. So I edited like big interviews for The Guardian for years and the first thing I would do is slash out that, that first two paragraphs where the journalist is talking about their cab journey to the interview. It's like, I do not care. Do yes. not put that in in print. <laughs> in audio, however, take us with you and turn your mic on.
1: <laughs> That's such an interesting point, um, and also I just realised we were, we were both at the uh, British Podcast Awards. I didn't get to speak to you there, but um, you did incredibly well. But I, congratulations! Yep. I mean, it was a few months ago now. It feels weird saying that, but I will keep taking that congratulations, however many months are. <laughs> <on. laughs> Mike and Ashin, thank you so much for joining us on PodPod, Pod. and also Mike for introducing me to the term driveway moment because I know exactly what you mean, but I've never heard it before. But copyright, well, I hope we can serve,
3: serve them up, you know, over the next few years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks for having thank us. Thank
1: you, thank you so much. Speak to okay. you soon. Cheers. Take care. Bye. Bye. I loved that chatting to Nasheen and Michael. I think I think it came across. I'm a big fan of Today in Focus. Uh, <laughs> I was really interested kind of just hearing about the idea of essentially being a multi-hyphenate because this is something that I taught, you know, I've been teaching a bit. There's something that I've been talking to my students about that. I think increasingly in the world of journalism you need to be able to do everything be a presenter be a producer having to be across that essentially like your own promoter marketing all of that um and it sort of feels like with today and focus it's a it's such a weird interesting blend because they obviously have this enormous team of people who are producers um but they also have journalists who have to be Decent enough to be able to present on mic. Reem, what do you think? Because is that something that you've seen a shift in over the past few years?
0: I I think it's it is important as a journalist to have multiple skills, multiple skill sets. Whether that's production, you know, presenting, and also reporting. But also, I think organisations need to consider. If it's very sustainable to ask journalists to know how to produce as well as present or as well as be a reporter, because at one point they're going to have to invest heavily into the podcasting space. And if they're going to do that, then they, they might need to consider and hire people purely for podcasting roles. Um, We've seen that with social media, where journalists used to be expected to know how to do social media as part of their main job, but also do their main job regularly and have that be side by side. But with social media becoming such a big entity on its own, now you see people getting hired as social media managers, and having that be their full responsibility in the newsroom. And I think podcasts might have to be the same, where it will just be one person's full responsibility to take care of podcasts and that could be presenting production um editing or then some and you also have places where you have one person dedicated for each of these little bits so it depends on on how much they would want to invest in podcasting but i think if they want to take it really seriously then they're going to have to invest in and the way to do that is by hiring more people.
1: Adam, what do you think in terms of like the longevity of these sorts of roles? Because presumably, if you're coming in and you're only able to do social media and nothing else, that gives you sort of like a finite amount of options maybe in the industry. But if you are able to produce, present, know about social media, do X, Y and Z, surely actually that benefits you in the long run.
2: So as someone who has been a multi-hyphenate for you know the entirety of my career i am um, uh, I'm a big fan of having the ability to you know cover a lot of a lot of these kinds of different areas and to have some level of knowledge about all of them. Where it becomes a bit tricky for me is as you say Reem, when organizations are asking people to do everything simultaneously
0: Mm. and
2: I think what Today in Focus have done really well is take journalists and turn them into podcasters where they're taking that sort of interview skill that is kind of quite essential for a lot of podcasting and the thought process of a kind of journalistic interviewer putting that through a podcast filter and getting something kind of I think it's fair to say quite quite unique as a result. And I'm not sure it'd work the same if you took a kind of a trained podcaster and sort of gave them a crash course in journalism.
1: Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. Was there anything else that sort of piqued your interest in that interview?
2: Well I particularly liked that the the Guardians teams are now actively pitching stories to Today in Focus. I thought that was really interesting and for me it underlined the prestige that Today in Focus particularly has within The Guardian and the prestige of podcasting among kind of journalists in general. And the fact that print journalists are kind of clambering over each other to get their work talked about on a podcast i think is a really interesting sign of the times
1: a hopeful one as well especially yes. considering what we we're talking about at the top mm. okay thank you both so much and of course thank you to Nishin iqbal and michael Safi for joining us and thank you for listening and don't forget what adam said The Podcast Advertising Summit takes place on the 25th of Jan at the Barbican Centre. We would love to see you down there. You can find all the info about tickets, etc. in the description. Do follow us on social at PodPodOfficial and rate and subscribe because, you know, we love to see those five stars. Thanks, of course, to Adam and Reem, as always. And the podcast is produced by Ollie Peart for Haymarket Business Media. I'm your host, Rihanna Dillon, and I'll see you next time. Bye. I'm a boss.